have your Bibles open to the book of Jonah. Uh, we come this morning to a really unusual passage. And it's not unusual because, uh, necessarily because it takes place, uh, Jonah, in the, the, the bowels of some kind of sea creature somewhere at the bottom of the Mediterranean Ocean 3,000 years ago, but, but granted, that is unusual. It's an unusual passage because here we have a, a, one of probably the richest, one of the richest theological um, sections of poems, a richest theological poem in the Old Testament that's immediately applicable to us. Now, now, to be clear, the reason it's applicable to us is not in spite of its theological richness. It's actually because of its theological richness. We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, if you're new, we have been studying for several weeks the life of Jonah, and we've been learning a lot about a man who is quite a lot like us, isn't he? If we're going to be honest, Jonah is a man of contradictions, isn't he? Uh, I mean, here is a servant of God who refuses to serve, a prophet of God who doesn't even think to pray, and a man of God that just keeps making mistake after mistake after mistake. As a Christian, in a lot of ways, I look at Jonah and I, I resonate with him because there's this contradiction and sense of inconsistency. Though what I want to do, it genuinely with my heart, I have a hard time playing out in the, the whoop and wolf of my life. And so in a lot of ways, I look at Jonah and I feel like I can relate with him. Now maybe, you know, I don't know where you are on your relationship, your relationship with God or your spiritual journey, but maybe it's not those aspects of Jonah that make him relatable. Maybe it's just you can understand what it's like to be a guy who just seems like every circumstance does not go his way. That as hard as you're trying to live your life, as best as you're trying to live your life, things just don't seem to work out. Maybe, maybe in worst case scenario, you resonate with Jonah because it seems like as if the hand of God himself stands against you as it clearly seemed to Jonah that the hand of God was against him. I don't know where you are on that, on that spectrum or that continuum, but there are many reasons we can find Jonah a very relatable character. Regardless of all those things, I think if you've ever felt that you are far from God, distant from him, then Jonah chapter 2 is definitely a chapter for you. Maybe you feel that God is angered with you and you've displeased him somehow, then this is a chapter for you. Maybe you felt the burden of your guilt before God and you really feel like you have blown it and that, there is, that, that God cannot or he will not hear you anymore. Then Jonah chapter 2 is for you. Maybe you feel lost and there is not a shred of hope for you then this is a chapter for you. Maybe you feel like you are in an impossible situation and no matter where you look, there is just no way out of this. And Jonah chapter two is for you. Wherever you might be, whether you feel like you have not measured up or you've let God down and there's, a re there's this distance you feel, you feel like life is such so difficult, there's no hope for you, this is a chapter for you. Now, before we jump into the heart of this text, which we're going to do in my, the, my second point this morning, we first need to kind of reorient ourselves to this passage because this chapter is very unique in the book of Jonah. So we want to ask exactly what is it we're looking at, and then when we ask, answer that question, we want to ask the question, what does God do about it? And then finally ask probably the most important question, how and why does God do anything about it in the first place? So those are the three questions we want to ask of our passage this morning. What are we looking at? What does God do about it, and how and why does God do anything about it in the first place? So let's look at them one at a time. What are we looking at? 
First of all, Jonah chapter 2 is unlike any of the other chapters in this four-chapter book. If you're observant, you're looking at it, you can just see the format of the page itself. The entire chapter, with the exception of verse 10, is indented. Did you notice that? Now, if you're using one of our study Bibles, you'll clearly see that. One of our pew Bibles, you'll see that. And if you have a good translation, you'll see that, unlike chapters 1, 3, and 4, chapter 2 is indented. Now, here's just a little tip. Whenever you see this in a Bible, in a good translation, the translators are trying to communicate to you. They're trying to give you a visual cue that the genre, that the literature itself has changed. Particularly when you see things indented like this, that the genre or literature you're reading is poetry or prose or like a psalm, for example, or a proverb. So this is a visual cue to let you know that the way you read this is different. Like you don't read Jonah chapter 2 in the same way you might read chapters 1, 3, and 4. In the same way, you don't read a newspaper in the same way you read good poetry, right? You, you'd be very confused if you read the newspaper like you did poetry or vice versa. So the genre has to determine how you read it. And unlike English poetry and prose, which is what we have here, which is basically based on, um, and I'm not a poet, so forgive me if I get this wrong, but kind of rhyme and rhythm and metric and meter, Hebrew poetry is different. It's not about rhythm and rhyme. It's about thoughts. And so predominantly what Hebrew poetry does, and you'll see this, maybe this will make, help you make sense of the Psalms and the Proverbs, is they use what's called either synthetic parallelism, where the second line, so you have stanzas, right? The second line is saying the same kind of thing that the first line is saying, but it's bringing a different nuance, but it says it in kind of the same ways, same points being broadcast, or antithetic parallelism, where the second line almost says conversely what the first line is saying to teach the same kind of point. You'll see that as we read this passage. So the first thing we realize as we're reading our Bibles, we go, okay, there's something very different about this particular passage of Scripture. So that's the first thing we need to be aware of. Secondly, there, there are probably two impressions uh, that I want to kind of dispel that, are, that you might have about our text. One comes from the very Bible itself, and the other comes from Disney. Okay, uh, the, the first one is found in chapter 1, verse 17. If you're just reading the Bible and you read that verse, the impression you get that as soon as Jonah was thrown out of the boat and it, he hits the water, immediately this fish comes up and gobbles him up and swims away. Okay, that did not happen. Right, that's, that's the first thing we need to get out of our minds. The other impression that you might have from Disney is this kind of Pinocchio-like image of Jonah hunched over a little campfire in this cavernous whale's belly, and he's recording this, like he's, and he's writing it in his moleskin journal, and he's writing what's happening. Okay? That's not what took place. This is a prayer, like the rest of the book of Jonah, that is written after the fact, as Jonah's reflecting on these events of his life, of how God was trying to use his waywardness to still accomplish his sovereign purposes for the nations. Now, to be clear, verse 1 does tell us that Jonah is crying out this prayer while inside this fish, but only after he probably regained consciousness after nearly drowning. We'll look at that in a little bit. Realizing that he wasn't dead, but inside a very, the very tight confines of some kind of sea creature, but the actual writing took place after the fact. So I just want to lay the scenario of what we're looking at. So verse 2, look at verse 2. Really, verse 2 is the summation of everything Jonah prays in the following verses 3 through 9. This is what it says in verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And here's that synthetic parallelism. Out of the belly of Sheol, the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. So you see, it's, it's saying the same kind of thing, but he's adding some nuance to it. 
verse 2 is really the, the contents of this entire prayer that verses 3 through 9 then expands and unpacks and helps us appreciate how he cried out in what situation and how God, in fact, answered him. So now let's talk about the actual prayer, this poem, this poetry we have. You know, from chapter 1, verse 15, from last week, Jonah was cast into the storm on the Mediterranean Sea, and we realize that he is probably terrified. If you have ever been in a raging sea and you are alone, it's frightening. And we imagine that Jonah is floundering on the surface of the Mediterranean Sea in the midst of a raging storm. And the boat, contrary to what we read, as soon as they threw him over, the sea didn't go immediately calm. And you can imagine Jonah floating in the calm ocean and the sailors just sitting there awkwardly going, well, should we bring him back? No, the sailors threw him overboard and the sailors continued on in the storm and it subsided. But by this time, Jonah and the boat are too far to even see each other. And the raging is continuing around Look at verse 3, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Can you imagine Jonah on the surface of the Mediterranean? We don't know if it was night or day, but if it was a bad storm, it was probably at least overcast and dark. And he's saying, I see these waves coming over me and crashing over me. And if you're out in the ocean, a five-foot wave can seem like a massive wall, let alone 10, 15, 20-foot waves with the storm and the rain and the crashing and maybe the thunder and lightning. Look at verse 5. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. Can you imagine Jonah floundering, seeing these sets coming in, pounding him and pounding him and pounding him in? And it pounds him under the surface. He comes up, breaks the surface, only to come up to a bunch of kelp or seaweeds. And as he's struggling, he's getting more tangled up. And here comes another wave that pounds him back under the water. And he's doing this over and over again. And he's recording. He is terrified. And finally, in verse 6, he's beginning to drown. That's the imagery. He says this, the roots of the mountains. He's talking about the sea floor. I am seeing the roots of the mountains. I'm going now under the waves, and there they are, the roots of the mountains and the sea floor. I went to the land of the, bar, of the land whose bars are closing in upon me. This is a reference to Hades or Sheol, the grave. In the ancient Near East culture, they believed that the, world, the netherworld was kind of a walled city that had bars and gates that, prohib, that kept people in. This imagery was actually very commonplace. We actually pick it up in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus says to Peter, the gates of Hades will not prevail. There was this idea that this netherworld was barred in and gates kept people inside. And Jonah says, I was descending into the land of the, 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 land of the grave, the netherworld. In verse 7, when my life was fainting away, that's a really nice poetic way of saying, I was probably losing, he was losing consciousness at this point. So he is fighting the ocean, he's fighting these waves, and he is drowning, and he's going down, and finally he begins to sink, and he's losing consciousness. So what are we looking at then at this prayer? This is really a thanksgiving prayer, a thanksgiving psalm of a man recorded later, as I said, after the fact, as he's recalling the terror, as he knew he was dying, as he's fighting the storm on the Mediterranean, and he's drowning, totally alone in the open ocean, totally without help, totally desperate, and gripped by the fear of his imminent death as he goes under the waves. 
He didn't want to die. It's very different from kind of the arrogance we saw of, yeah, that's me, throw me over. Just, uh, Lord, I'm not going to do what you want to do. It's the Ninevites. Who, why bring the gospel to them? And all of a sudden, he realizes the existential reality that he's going to die. And he is terrified and cries out that God would save him. Jonah is literally drowning in God's just judgment upon him. We see in verse 2, verse 7, I cried out, I remembered the Lord. And what does the Lord do about it? God saves Jonah. Now, if you don't know the story, maybe you're new to this, that's phenomenal that God would save Jonah, this rebellious, disobedient, hard-hearted, entitled, self-centered, irrational, spiritually useless man. So here's this guy floundering on the the Mediterranean seas, drowning in his sin before he loses consciousness. You can almost imagine it, the kind of the the air bubbles coming out of his lungs. And if you've ever lost consciousness, you know how your vision begins to blur and the dark edges become dark. And you can imagine him saying, just at that moment, I cried out for God's mercy. I remembered him as he sinks 5, 10, 15, 20 feet below the surface and he knows death has got it, it's in his grip, and he's pulling down. And then from the darkness, some huge aquatic creature pulls him in and takes him down even further. Yeah, I didn't want to scare you guys. It just, that's a frightening image, so I just want you to remember what it could have looked like. Maybe it was the basking shark, I don't know. But, God, but Jonah cries out for salvation, and God sends it to him. Now, maybe a day or two go by where he's slipping in and out of consciousness as he's in the bowels of this this kind of creature. Granted, he's in some kind of fish, but he'll take what he can get. He recognizes, God just saved me. Now, here's the thing you need to realize. The fish is not part of God's judgment. The fish is actually God's salvation from the judgment that Jonah was experiencing by drowning. Being swallowed alive by this fish was God's mercy to Jonah, as he would later record. Now, maybe you didn't think of that. Maybe you thought the fish was part of God's judgment. No, it was his salvation. That's very telling of God's salvation to us. We'll get into that in a little bit. But friends, there is a lot of encouragement here. And I just want to make five brief points about it. But here's the the, the main driving point of encouragement. God answers his children. He always answers his children when they cry out in their distress. God will always answer our cry of mercy. And if we're going to argue from the greater to the lesser, if God will hear and save and deliver a rebellious, disobedient, hard-hearted, entitled, self-centered, irrational, and spiritually useless washout like Jonah, then you're okay, right? Because I may not know your exact circumstances or situations, but you probably can't be as bad as that. And even if you are, God's mercy is for you. Let's make five quick uh, observations about our passage. First, God answers us in spite of our guilt. Did you notice that? Jonah was in fact guilty. This whole situation is here because of Jonah. He said in chapter 1, verse 3, that he was running from the presence of the Lord. He confesses this as much in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, this storm is here because of me. This is God's judgment. He's running from God. He knows he's guilty, and the storm has come upon them. And they throw him overboard, and yet the mere fact of his guilt did not stop God from blessing him. 
The mere fact of his guilt didn't stop God from blessing him. In fact, friends, unless God blesses us, there really is no other condition we can be before the Lord but guilty. If we felt like we have to have a a, a presence of innocence before God will hear us, we're doomed. There is no other condition we can be in other than guilty before the Lord. Now, that might strike you as weird. You say, well, I don't feel guilty because our culture doesn't understand guilt at all, actually. Because when I say guilt, there's a good chance most of you are referring to the subjective experience of feeling guilty, right? So, for example, I'm going to be honest. One of my sanctification processes is driving a little bit more like a a Christian. So, to that end, I put our church's sticker on my car to help keep me accountable. But I'll be honest, stop signs still are more like suggestions, and I kind of do roll through, right? I, I, you know... 75, 85, as long as I'm kind of keeping up with everyone else, I'm good. Do I feel guilty? No. But I tell you what, if a, if a CHP officer pulls me over and I said, I don't feel guilty, he's going to go, he's not going to say, oh, okay, then no problem, no harm, no foul, I'm going to move on. What's he going to do? Why? Because I'm guilty. It doesn't matter if I have a subjective experience of my guilt. I am objectively guilty. I have objective guilt. And see, that's what the Bible is often talking about. It's not talking about whether or not you feel guilty. Friends, we are guilty before God. Friends, are you in trouble because maybe there has been disobedience in your life? Maybe you felt it. Maybe you haven't. But as you're honest and you think back, have you run away from the Lord? If you have, take hope because there's always hope for the guilty because the Bible tells us so. It's not just Jonah chapter 2. This is a theme that runs throughout the whole of the Bible. Keep your finger in Jonah. Turn with me to to Psalm 107. Uh, If you're reading one of our pew Bibles, it's on page 507, excuse me, 506. This theme that God always brings and answers the, the, us in our guilt is all through the scriptures. Psalm 107, verses 10 through 15, the psalmist writes, that some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Why? For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. And look what God does. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Verse 13, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. God delivers us. God answers us in spite of our guilt. Secondly, as we look at Jonah, God answers us in spite of his judgment. Did you notice in verse 3 that Jonah said something that seems to contradict what happened in chapter 1? Look at verse 3. Back in Jonah, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. But in chapter 1, who actually cast Jonah into the water? The sailors. So is there, is there inconsistencies or contradiction? No. Jonah is just recognizing God's sovereign purposes are being accomplished through the means of these sailors, whether they knew it or not. But friends, the good news is this. 
as we've been learning in Jonah, until God brings an end to all things at the end of the age, God's punitive actions towards us are never just punitive, but they're always also redemptive. We said last week, God's judgments are also God's severe mercies to turn us from our sins. Now, Hebrews chapter 12 says that when, when God disciplines us, he disciplines us, those he loves, as a father disciplines his children. He talks about in verse 10 that we respected our heavenly fathers when they disciplined us for our own good. How much more should we respect the Lord who disciplines us for our eternal good? Friends, this theme is all through Scripture. If you're familiar with the Haggai the prophet, the Lord says through Haggai the prophet to the people, I'm paraphrasing here, he says, hey, you, you work for money and I just blow it all away. And the money you still have left, you put it into purses, and guess what? I cut holes in your purses. In other words, the Lord says through Haggai to the prophet, to the people, I'm constantly thwarting you and, and making you just go crazy with your struggles so that you would realize there's no life apart from me, that, you, that I am the source of life, and I'm trying to bring you back. I'm trying to frustrate you with following after your own gods so that you'd come back to me. But you don't. C.S. Lewis says, in our joys, God speaks to us, but in our pains, God shouts to us. Listen to what Job said. I'll have it on the screens behind me. Job 36, 15. And keep your ears open for those prepositional phrases. Job says that God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. You know what Job is saying? That, that God in his kindness, he, he afflicts us. He, he delivers us through our afflictions so we would cry out to him and say, I give up. What is going on? Help me out. Throw me a bone, Lord. That's what Job is saying here. Friends, in God's economy, God, adversity in our life is never just punitive, never just to punish us, not at all. But it's always redemptive so that we would come back to him. Friends, if you feel that the very hand of God may be against your life, do not despair to call out to him in mercy. Even if his judgment upon you is just, he answers even in his judgment, just like he answered Jonah. Third point, God answers us and delivers us from impossible circumstances. I'll praise God for that. That God, as a matter of fact, God delights to deliver people in the most impossible of circumstances so that it's very clear without a shadow of a doubt that it was he doing it so that he alone receives the glory and it's clear that you've been saved by him as an act of his goodness and love for you. Friends, God is the like master of delivering you from the impossible situation. Think of the Bible. Think of like, what you know of Scripture. It starts kind of in the beginning with literally a slave nation, no army, no weapons, and they thwart and rout the strongest army or ancient empire known in the ancient Near East, the Egyptians. They were slaves to them, and yet they vanquished them because God was on their side. What about David, a shepherd boy, five foot six, 140 probably pound, nothing pound kid, facing a nine-foot-seven Philistine giant armed to the teeth, and David takes him out with a rock. Or Gideon, 
who God delivers against an army of 10,000. And Gideon gets several thousand, and he feels like, all right, we got a chance. And God says, yeah, you got a chance, and that's exactly why I want you to get rid of most of them, because you think you were the one that won. Why don't you take 300 men and go after the 10,000? I mean, that was like the, the 300 before. 300 was 300. Probably the greatest example of this is how God thwarts death itself and turns the whole world upside down, not through a powerful army or devastating apocalypse, but through a a baby in a manger. You see a pattern here, friends? So that every time God delivers, nobody can say, yeah, that was us, we thought of it, We're, we're we're pretty confident, we're pretty competent people, we're pretty smart, we figured it out. No, so we go, God must have done this, all glory to God alone. Think of Jonah, what more impossible situation could you possibly find yourself than to be floundering in the midst of a a tropical or some kind of hurricane storm by yourself in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean? What more impossible situation could there be? And yet God delivered him. God answered his cry of mercy. What Mark chapter 10 verse 27 says, and Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Fourth reason, God answers us in stages, not all of which are comfortable. We see that very clearly here. Just as God's work in our hearts is an ongoing process of refinement, so often is his working in our lives. Friends, we have to remove the notion from our minds of the all God answers prayers all or nothing kind of way. That's just not how God works. Sure, when Jonah cried out to be delivered for mercy in the sea, it would have been nice to not have been swallowed by some sea creature, right? I mean, Jonah didn't know about this, but we see in biblical history, God could have easily just made Jonah disappear and then end up in front of the gates of Nineveh. He did that for Philip in the book of Acts, right? God could have easily done that. But God chose a very uncomfortable means of saving his servant, I'm going to say maybe it was a basking shark that just sucked him up and brought him in. That's quite a terrifying means of salvation. But God does answer us, even if it's in stages that we don't like. But Jonah took that as evidence of God's faithfulness, and he rejoiced, and he ran with it. Friends, God is working out our conformity to Christ in stages as well. Think of it this way, okay? See, this is, this is Jesus here, and the Bible is very clear that God is wanting us to be like Jesus, okay? So this is the goal. Put yourself somewhere on a spectrum. I don't know where that would be. Some of you might think you're here. The rest of us would be more down here. I don't know. But how traumatic would that be if that from, here, from wherever you're at to here is one leap, right? God does it in incremental stages, We see this all through the New Testament as well. Keep your finger in Jonah. Go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using our pew Bible, page 976. Ephesians chapter 1, and Paul's talking about something very similar to this process of stages. Ephesians 1 verse 12, Paul says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee or the down payment, the good money of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see that? 
that he says, okay, I'm doing this amazing thing. I'm going to bring you an inheritance, but right now you're not going to get it all. You get the down payment. It's a great down payment. It's the Holy Spirit, but this is your down payment. It's a guarantee that I'm doing this work. God's salvation is often in stages, just like we see in Jonah. We shouldn't be surprised that God works this way. Lastly, what we see from Jonah is that God answers us in order to win our undivided loyalty and thanks. See, the answer to Jonah's prayer had the desired effect. He sees correctly that those who hope in idols, as Jonah did before, his idols was his comfort, was his prestige, doing things his own way. They give up hope of true, steadfast love. And he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And these two verses, verses 8 and 9, are so potent with application. They are, in a sense, the essence of the gospel message. Anyone who holds on to idols, functional God replacements that you look to, to bring you satisfaction, to bring you fulfillment, to bring you meaning, to bring you power, to bring you whatever it is you think you need, that those who look to those things forsake true life-imparting, hope-inspiring love from God. Jonah gets that now. And he recognizes the error of his ways, and he gives thanks to God, Yahweh, and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And notice, this is exactly where the Lord wanted to bring Jonah. This is exactly where he needed to be, where he realized that he misunderstood God's grace in his life. And friends, if we're going to apply this immediately, if Jonah misunderstood God's grace, there's a chance we misunderstand God's grace. He recognized that God's grace wasn't just for him, but it was for all people, including the hated Ninevites, including the sailors that he was so apathetic to. And he gets it. And he says, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed. I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He gets it. Now, is this a full repentance? Not really. If you know the story of Jonah, he kind of, we wish life was that way, but it's not, isn't it? And that's why I find Jonah hopeful. There are moments where he gets what God is doing, and it's, it's right on. He's preaching the gospel, and then he flounders again. So is this true repentance from Jonah? I don't know. But we see remorse we see him renouncing what he used to be like, and we see him open to be different. And so he cries out that salvation belongs to the Lord, and immediately the fish vomits him out on dry land to get him back on course to Nineveh. Now this is, this is encouraging for Jonah. We do have to ask the question, but why would God do this? And we say, well, it's because that's what the story says, but that, that's not the point. Why does God give mercy to Jonah, who, as we've talked about, is a hard-hearted, self-willed, irrational, spiritually useless man at this point in his life? You might say, well, look, maybe God was just being magnanimous and would just decide to be kind because that's what God is, and he does that every now and again. But how do we have the surety, the certainty that when you cry out for mercy, God's going to answer. How do we know for sure that this just wasn't a, a, a fluke, a one-time thing? Rick, you don't know my situation. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how far it's been, how far I've gone. How can I be sure that God's going to be merciful when I'm crying out that he's going to answer me rather than just laugh at me and say, you're in my judgment. That's where you need to be. That's a critical question. I think that's the question we have to be asking of Jonah. So let's answer that. How and why does God do anything at all about it? First thing we need to recognize about Jonah, critical, 
Notice that Jonah recognized his plight. He knew at this point he needed saving. There was no doubt in his mind as he's floundering under the waves of the Mediterranean that he cannot save himself. The terror and fear that gripped him when he's now facing the consequences of his disobedience have come full force. It was very easy to be arrogant and rebel against God when the consequences were still removed. But when he was in the ocean, he felt he was going down. He was gripped with terror, and he realized he was wrong. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, he's constantly saying, I cried out to the Lord. I'm driven away from your sight. You will deliver me. I remember your name. Jonah realizes that he was fighting God, that he was wrong, hard-hearted, self-willed, self-centered. He realized that as he was going down and as just as he's losing consciousness, he says, I remember you, you were right and I am wrong. Friends, that's the heart of repentance. So the question I have to ask you is, do you see that too in yourself? Do you want to change? Jonah realized, you're right, I'm wrong, I need to change, but it's too late. I am literally drowning under your just judgment Do you recognize your need for change? That's the most important element. Just do you see, God, you were right, and I was wrong. If you do, there's great hope. This is why Jonah 2 was written. Who do you think's reading this? Israelites, who think they don't need to change. They're all perfect because they're Israelites. And Jonah's saying that's not how God's grace operates. It operates on those who know they need it. And I didn't think that way. And now I realize I did. And it took me being thrown into a storm in the Mediterranean. But it's too late. But it's not. Because he recognized his need to change. And he says, I cried out. And I looked to the temple. You see that phrase? Two times in verse 4b and 7b. There's this out of nowhere a reference to the temple. Now why is that important? Well, any Jew, any good Jew who was reading this, and that was the original audience, the Jews, they would have known very well what's housed in the temple. Well, the Ark of the Covenant, right? You guys, you guys have all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. The Ark of the Covenant was housed in the temple. And what did the Ark of the Covenant house? That was the most important thing about the temple. As big as this, this complex was, you had the outer precincts, you had the court of the Gentiles, you had the Holy of Holies, but it all was about... The Ark of the Covenant. Because in the Ark was the law of God, and Jonah looked to the temple. And by the way, this is from 1 Kings 8. Jonah's remembering God's promise that if you just look to me, look to the temple, I will give mercy. So he looks to the temple, but he sees the law. He's reminded, that's the law I've just failed against. That's the law that's condemning me. But here's what Jonah knows that sometimes we forget. What's the thing that covered the Ark of the Covenant? Remember from the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? There was these two cherubs, right? And they were bowed down and their wings were like this. You remember that? That's called the mercy seat. It's separate. It sits on the Ark of the Covenant. We often think of it as the same thing. And in one sense, it was the lid. So it is the same. But it was the mercy seat. Every year on the Day of Atonement, if you have Jewish friends, you might have heard them talk about it. they got to observe Yom Kippur, right? Yom meaning day in Hebrew and Kippur meaning covering, the day of covering. So the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, the high priest would go before the mercy seat with a bowl of blood from a sacrificial animal that they had just slain outside. Because remember, sin was a crime and crimes have to be punished. 
We don't want to live in a world where criminals and injustice and oppression goes unanswered for. The problem is, and this is where we have to admit God is right and we're wrong, we're often the criminals. We're often the oppressors as much as the oppressed. I'm often the victimizer as I am the victim. And so there's a problem. And so to resolve this, an animal would be sacrificed and its blood would be brought and the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. This is an amazing scene that, you know, you had all this incense burning and blood would be thrown on top of it. So when God would look down upon his law, what he would see is the blood splattered all over the mercy seat symbolizing the price had been paid. Someone paid the price for breaking the law. Someone paid the price for injustice, for evil, for oppression, for wickedness. Blood had been shed. My justice has been satisfied. I can be merciful and gracious. So Jonah, in looking to the temple, was acknowledging God's gospel promise. He couldn't keep the law, neither as you or I can keep the law. He knew, I cannot obey God the way I should. And truth be known, friends, none of us can do that. If you knew how I can't obey the law, you wouldn't bother listening to me when I preach. But if I knew how you don't keep the law, I wouldn't bother preaching to you. So it's a wash, okay? So we are all equals here. But the problem is we couldn't keep the law, neither could Jonah, but he trusted in the mercy that the mercy seat represented. So Jonah would look to the temple and see the perfections of God's law that he failed against, but he'd also see God's provision for his failure. And friends, this is why we have a better assurance that when we cry out for mercy, we can guarantee get that mercy because we have a better assurance than Jonah ever did in the blood of animals and bulls and sacrifices. I realize I'm running late, so bear with me here. I just want to get more time. We've got to talk about this. In, in, the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint was the Bible that most people read in the first century. In that translation, the word they used to translate mercy seat in the Old Testament was a Greek word, hilasterion, okay? It means mercy seat. It means propitiation, to, to turn away wrath with payment, This is what Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jonah did, I do, you do, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a hilasterion, a mercy seat, the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So what am I saying is that Jonah looked to the temple trusting in God's mercy on the mercy seat, that there would be blood on that mercy seat, that someone paid the price. We look to the one that the temple pointed to, the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of you and I. Friends, the reason God will always answer any one of us in our cry for mercy is because God did not answer his son when he cried for mercy. The reason he will never turn you down is because he ignored his son on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew very well because the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, your sin has put a barrier between you and I. I cannot see you. I cannot hear you. Sin is in the way. A sacrifice needs to be made. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says Jesus Christ was that sacrifice. As all of the sins of the nation of Israel was put on that animal, all the sins of humanity, including Jonah and everyone in this room, were put on Christ so he could be the sacrificial lamb on our behalf 
so that his blood could be the blood of mercy, that God would look down and say, my law has been satisfied, not by the blood of bulls and doves, but my own son. That's why God will always answer us if we look to him, recognizing our need, because we know the price of that mercy came at the life of his son. Friends, if if he would pay that price to restore you, there is nothing you could do, nothing you have ever done that would prevent him from restoring you and giving you mercy if you will look to him and recognize that he was right, I was wrong. Give me mercy and save me, and he will. Let me close with Jonah's words in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake, they forfeit their hope of real love but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for answering our cry of distress in Christ. We are Jonah, drowning in your just judgment. Lord, our rebellion may look different from from each of us in this room. Our rebellion would look different, but the core engine of it is the same. You're wrong, we're right. Lord, we recognize you're right, we're wrong. We look to your mercy. Would you save us? We look to your mercy. Thank you that you saved us. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.